Well, let's take our Bibles this morning. We want to turn to the last chapter in the book of Matthew. Now, we've been going through the book of Matthews, but we're really going to skip a lot of chapters that come to the very end of it and uh, allow us to kind of work backwards a little bit in weeks to come. I'm going to be starting a, a new series of messages on unsolved mysteries, and we're going to be talking about, like a testimony like Angel on the video just a few moments ago, uh, why would God touch her heart? Maybe somebody else's not so much. When does God actually do that? What about the mystery of baptism? What about the gospel mystery and what that really means to our life? That's in the weeks to come. Now, this morning, uh, as we celebrate the resurrection, we're going to be looking at the mystery of the resurrection. It's been already a great Easter weekend. How many of you were involved at all the extravaganza yesterday? And what a great time we had there. Yeah, we had the largest crowd I think that we've ever had at a children's event. People were coming out of everywhere, ran out of everything, had to go to Sam's, you know, and Costco or whatever and grab some stuff, new food and some more food. So it was a great day. And uh, we pray that you'll have a great day here this morning. Now, as I mentioned in my prayer just a few moments ago, there are going to be people here this morning, and maybe they're, you're here in this service, and I'm, I'm sure there are uh, people like you here, many of them, where you're thinking to yourself, I'm, I'm no, I don't usually do the church thing. Maybe I come on Easter, maybe I don't. I grew up in church, but I don't go anymore. And I want you to be able to uh, just to sit back and take the Word of God and ask God right now that, God, if you're real, and if you really want to be a part of my life, speak to me through this passage. Because as we celebrate the resurrection, we need to realize that 71% is estimated, surveyed, 71% of Americans believe in the bodily resurrection of Christ. On the other hand, people in the UK, less than half of the people in the United Kingdom believe in the bodily resurrection of Christ. It's like it doesn't make sense to them. You know, the old argument that you get from Religion 101 or Philosophy 101 is basically Jesus lived, we know that, but Jesus lived, he had some followers, and the followers really loved him, and then he died on a cross, and then uh, legend has it, it just begin to kind of, the legend begins to grow and to grow and grow, and down through the first couple of centuries, it really grew, and they threw in some miracles, and uh, the resurrection, and all these kind of things are going on, and hence you have then the Bible written hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years later, and finally this is what we have right here in our hands, and it's really just not true. Now the problem to that whole story is, it's just none of it's true. None of it's true. In fact, we're going to find out that the people who actually wrote the Bible, uh, for example, the book of Matthew was written by a disciple by the name of Matthew, and he wrote it within 30 years, 30 years of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul wrote the book of 1 Corinthians in chapter 15, talks about the resurrection of Jesus Christ more than any other passage in the Bible. And he wrote it within 15 to 20 years, 15 to 18 years actually, after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That means there were eyewitnesses going on. Now, the question I just asked a few moments ago on the video is, so what? You know, so what that 71% of the people in America believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? What does that mean to our life? Well, if you're sitting here this morning, you're one of the 29%, it doesn't matter because you don't really necessarily believe it happened anyway. And so I want to be looking at two major things this morning. One, did it really happen? And secondly, what does it mean to our lives? And I'll be giving a personal testimony of that, but what does it mean to our lives because he has been resurrected? And so as we look at this story in Matthew chapter 28, we, we ask ourselves the question, first of all, what is the story? What really happened according 
to this disciple who was writing about it within his lifetime, with other people's lifetime, other eyewitnesses still being alive. Here's what he had to say, beginning in verse 1. He says, now after the Sabbath, that's on a Saturday, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and another Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, and an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. Now already this is a, a big supernatural event. An angel showing up. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. They, they passed out, really. They, they were scared to death, as most people were in the Bible when they saw an angel. But the angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here. Here's the announcement. He has risen. And he said, Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. That's where he did most of his ministry. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. So as we open up the story, we find out what really kind of took place. Jesus had died on a cross. And as he died on the cross, the Bible says, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And at that point, the Bible teaches us that Jesus took on your sins and mine on his shoulders. Then a few moments later, he said, it is finished, and he died on the cross. He was taken down off the cross. He was uh, prepared sort of for burial because he was wrapped up like a mummy, placed in a borrowed tomb by the fellow by the name of Joseph, who was a follower of Christ, had some money, and so he gave his his tomb to uh, Jesus. He was buried there. A stone was rolled over it. But here's the thing. Jesus had predicted, in fact, in our passage last week, we talked about a little bit. Jesus predicted the sign of Jonah. He said, this is going to be your sign. I'm going to be in the grave for three days. I'm going to rise again on the third day. Well, the disciples didn't hear that. They weren't educated men. They just didn't hear it. They, they could not comprehend that. But the Jewish leaders did. And they, the last thing they wanted was this new energy going into this movement that would be eventually called Christianity. And so they went to the Romans and they said, look, you know, we're, we're friends, we're, 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 uh, we're working together here, and if you think that Jesus has called an uproar so far, wait till the disciples start claiming that, they, uh, they, you know, that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. They're going to go in, they're going to steal the body, let's seal it up, and then if you could put some guards there, that'd be, be great. And so that's exactly what they did. They sealed up the tomb, Roman seal. Then they put the guards at the tomb. And we'll read about that in just a few moments. And then the Bible says this great earthquake happened, and evidently that rolled away the stone. The grave was empty, and so, the, the, my goodness, they, they were, the guards were, were trembling with fear, not only because they saw an angel, but also they, the, the, uh, the penalty for going to sleep on guard duty is going to be, uh, is, was uh, being drawn and quartered. That's a horse tied onto one hand and one leg and another horse tied onto another hand and another leg and you're split apart. They were going to be killed for going to sleep on guard duty because that's the only way the body could have been stolen. And so you get the idea, the women show up to the tomb. Why? To anoint Jesus for burial as was the custom of the Jewish faith and then the grave was empty. Now, the question remains, was the grave really empty? Well, there's 10 things I want you to know that we know about Jesus Christ. 
Now, let's get this right out of the way, right off the bat, because these are the things historians, other than biblical writers, tell us about Jesus Christ. First of all, Jesus of Nazareth died by means of crucifixion. Jesus' body was placed in a guarded tomb. The disciples were shattered that their Messiah had died. They lost all hope and did not expect a resurrection. Number four, the tomb was found empty on the third day. We know that. Eyewitnesses reported the bodily appearance of Jesus on several occasions. In fact, at one time, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, over 500, people saw him at one time. The shattered faith of the disciples was radically transformed into a bold belief in the resurrection. The disciples from this point willingly sacrificed their lives for the cause of Christianity. Number seven, the proclamation of the early church was unapologetically the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This was in the first century. This is where people were still alive that were eyewitnesses. This preaching began in Jerusalem where Jesus was crucified. Eight, the Christian church sprang from the good news of the resurrection. Sunday became the featured day of worship. Number nine, Jesus appeared to James and to Paul. And these were some of the people in the Bible, both of whom experienced conversion as a result of their encounters with the risen Christ. And number 10, Jesus' body was never found. That's significant in our story here in just a few moments. Now, I could look, and I've looked at times in times past, about several different things of proofs or evidences of the resurrection. I would like to just limit myself for just a moment in this, just for this passage alone, just to give you three in this passage by itself. First of all, I want you to notice the uniqueness of the story in the fact that the women were those who were testifying. In fact, if you were to look at this passage in verses 1 and 2 and 3, you would find out no men showed up the tomb. Now, one of the disciples really believed that he was going to rise from the dead. It just didn't even occur to them. It wasn't one of those things where, you know, he said he was going to rise from the dead, but we don't believe him. It just didn't register with them. They didn't know what the sign of Jonah was all about. And the ladies who went to the tomb didn't know that either. They just went for a ministry to their Lord. But I want you to notice the only witnesses to the resurrection in the very beginning were two ladies. Now, the reason that's significant is because in the Jewish faith back in this time, and remember what we've said in times past, that this gospel was written primarily to get the Jewish people on board with with, uh, Jesus as the Messiah. And so the last thing you would do in your story, if you were making up a story, is to say that two women were were testifying because of the Jewish faith. They, They ignored that. In fact, some of the stories in the Bible, you would say, oh, Jesus fed 5,000 men. They only counted the men. Now, the, the, really the Christian faith, as far as the, uh, as a whole throughout the world, has a- actually lifted up women and their stature in all the world, and all the other, uh, above all the other religion and society and cultures of the world. And this was a case in point. Though two women were the, uh, the ones who saw the empty tomb and went and told the disciples. Now, if you were going to make up a story, you wouldn't make it up this way. You would find some way or somehow to avoid this. And the only reason you would tell it this way is that it was true. But then notice in verse, all the way over to verse 17. It says, now the 11 disciples of verse 16 went to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Now, if you were going to start a movement, you wouldn't say this. You would leave this. Why would you even say that? Like Thomas, 
One of the followers of Jesus, one of the disciples said, look, you know, I wasn't there when you first saw the resurrected Lord speaking to the rest of the disciples. He said, I'm not going to believe it until I see the nail prints in his hand. Why would you put some stuff in there like that unless it were true? You won't, don't start off a movement by saying, hey, some doubted. But then I want you to notice what happened in verses 11 through 15. While they were going, behold, some of the guards, some the guard went into the city and told the chief priest all that had been taking place. And when they assembled with the elders and taking counsel, and these were the Jewish elders, they gave sufficient sum of money to the soldiers. <coughs> Excuse me. And said, tell people, his disciples came by night, stole the body away while you were asleep. Boy, this is dangerous stuff. But what choice do they have? They need an advocate. The guards needed some help here. No story they could have possibly told is going to get them out of the death penalty. But the Jewish leaders came along and said, if anyone of the governors comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep him out, keep you out of trouble. So they took the money, as did they, uh, as they were directed, and this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. What did he mean by that, to this day? It was still going on when Matthew was writing this, his rendition of the life of Jesus Christ less than 30 years later. What was the story? Look, we don't know what, what's going on here. We don't know the Jewish leaders. We don't know what's going on, but we don't believe in the resurrection. We don't believe Jesus Christ uh, was, is coming uh, back to life again. So there's got to be another explanation. So this is what you tell them. And they made up a lie, a, a kind of fake news, a cover story. And it said, it's going on even into this day. And so you, you wonder to yourself, well, is this true? Is something else true? There have been many theories that have been presented mainly in the last 150 or so years, 100, maybe 200 years, um, about the resurrection of Christ. Now, before the early 1800s, nobody really doubted that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. But the intellectual movement came along, enlightenment and things like that. And a fellow by the name of Schoenfeld wrote the book Passover Plot and popularized the idea of the swoon theory. And that is Jesus Christ never really died. He was placed in the tomb and he healed up and he uh, after three days of being beaten with 39 lashes on the back and crucified, hanging on a cross with nails in his hands and his feet, crown of thorns on his head, died so quickly that uh, the, when the Roman soldiers came along and, and were going to speed up his death, he was already dead after six hours. They placed him in a tomb. Three days later, he rose from the dead, and then, or rather, he rose up because he was feeling so good, and he rolled the stone away, this huge, heavy stone, and left his clothing there with no blood on it. Well, that's preposterous. Nobody really believes that, and that's the reason why nobody really buys into that today. But then there's other stories, like, for example, the hallucination theory. You know, the 500 witnesses just all were hallucinating. The disciples were hallucinating. Listen, hallucinations do take place, but they don't take place in groups. You know what I'm saying? They don't take place in groups. One of the things that we, again, have to come back to is that these were eyewitness accounts. The people, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, that saw the resurrection of Christ, 500, not just 500, 500 at one time. 
It's not counting everybody else. These people who saw them, he said, many of you are still alive today. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean? Well, that's about the same amount of time that um, 9-11 happened with the Twin Towers being destroyed by terrorists in our country. How many of you remember that? All right. I had the privilege of going there on a trip and seeing what happened afterwards. And I saw it, of course, on TV, just like you did. And I know of people that were there. Uh, one, I remember, came to our church right after all this happened at a men's event and testified about him seeing it right there before his very eyes, all coming down and running for his life. Now, someone coming along and saying, well, the resurrection is just, oh, man, it's just a hoax. It's just not, it's not real history. It would be the same way of someone coming along and saying 9-11 never happened. You know, I wasn't alive at the time. 9-11 never happened. He said, no, no, no. I, I was an eyewitness to that. I was an eyewitness. He said, well, Matthew's gospel, 30 years. Well, how about the Vietnam War? How many of you here served in the Vietnam War? Anyone here? All right, why don't you stand up? You served in the Vietnam War. Why don't you stand up? Let us honor you this morning. Amen. Now, let me ask you something real quickly. What, did that really happen? Were you there? It happened, right? Now, that would be like someone coming along in the news and saying, well, Vietnam never really happened. What happened was uh, they were all in South Korea. They were, uh, you know, they were living up a little bit, just kind of guarding things around. And they thought, well, you know, this is not really big enough. So let's make up some stories. Let's pick out Vietnam. Let's create a war there. And we'll just say we all went back and really fought through the jungles of Vietnam, and we just made up a story. That would be like someone actually believing that, as to believe that what happened here was not real, that hundreds of people did not see the resurrected Lord, the resurrected Christ. So really, we have let me, let's face it, let's just cut down to the chase for interest of time. In the arguments, there's only two things that could have happened. Either the body was stolen or Jesus Christ rose from the dead. That's it. Now, if the body was stolen, you still have two choices. Either the enemy stole the body or the friends stole the body. Friend or foe? Well, if the foes, the enemy stole the body, they certainly had, they certainly had opportunity all they have to do is go, go and tell the guards, look, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll pay you off. Here's some money. We're going to steal the body out of the tomb. And then when the disciples, all these followers of Jesus, start preaching the resurrection of Christ, we'll just produce the body, and we'll just kill everything. Well, that's all fine and good, but they never produced the body. They never did. And so there's no motivation for them to do that. And with the disciples, not only was there no motivation since they didn't even believe that Jesus Christ was going to rise from the dead. They were blinded to it, but they had no opportunity to steal the body. And think about it just a moment. Here were these men, as we've already stated, that after this event gave their life. Listen to some of what happened to some of the disciples. Matthew was killed in Ethiopia. Mark was dragged through the streets until dead. Peter, Simon, Andrew, and Philip were crucified. Peter upside down, as tradition would hold it. James was beheaded. Thomas pierced with lances. James the lesser stoned to death. And Paul was beheaded. Now you think, well, there have been religions in the past, causes in the past, 
even political causes where people died for that political cause or that religious cause, and that's true, lots of them. But no one ever died for their cause believing and knowing that it was a lie. This would be the only time. Oh, they created this big story about the resurrection, and then they began to preach that and fool people. And finally, they would not even deny it faced with death. You're talking about eyewitness accounts in their lifetime of people would come along. In fact, for example, if somebody said again, the Vietnam War was this, or the Vietnam War was that, and somebody come up and said, no, I was there. That's ridiculous. I fought in that war. My friends died in that war. How dare you say anything like that? Well, if Paul, in this case Matthew, was saying Jesus Christ rose from the dead, there'd be somebody right beside him in the street or whatever. He was walking along saying, Matthew, I know that Jesus Christ was not risen from the dead. You're saying that there are 500 witnesses, Paul. Where are the 500 witnesses? No, nobody ever said that in any of the writings. You never heard any story like that. Nobody ever denied it. In fact, in 1 Corinthians, when Paul was talking about the resurrection of Christ, the problem with the church at Corinth was not believing that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. They already knew that happened. They were concerned about them rising from the dead and following Jesus. They were in doubt about that. There was never any doubt about the resurrection. Lee Strobel, in the case for Christ, was an atheist reporter for the Chicago Tribune, and his wife became a believer in Christ. And so he went about, for her sake, proving that Christianity was wrong. He asked one of his friends, he said, how can I do that? And he says, well, it's like a house of cards. You've got to start off with the resurrection. If you can disprove the resurrection, then all of it falls down because all of it's based on that one event. He went about trying to prove the resurrection faults. He went around the country and really around the world interviewing different people in their particular area, not even religious people, but their particular area of, of death and dying and, and all these people over a period of months and came to the conclusion the resurrection of Jesus Christ happened and he gave his life to the Lord. He's written many books since. So what does all this mean? You know, the so what? What does it mean that the Son of God would come down to this earth die on a cross, and rise again from the dead. Well, first of all, and I, I bring some personal stuff into this. First of all, I can trust his heart. We look at this passage, and we think to ourselves, well, verses 16 through 20 is just really about another passage altogether. It's talking about going out and witnessing and going out and sharing your faith. But really, it's a part of this passage. It is. It's a part of it because it begins to apply the resurrection of Jesus Christ to our life. Notice, as it says, he says in verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always. What does it mean? It means that God is with us. It's like a bookend, a passage. Over in Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, when we're talking about the incarnation, the birth of Jesus Christ and coming to this earth, it says this about Jesus, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. The goal of Christ coming to this earth was for God to be with us. God was with us at his birth. He, God was with the disciples and the people of his day, and now God is with us. 
And what does that mean? Well, it, it means that God wants to be a part of your life. Now, I know that many of you have maybe had some doubts, just like Thomas in the past. Maybe you've gone through adversity. I've been through adversity before, and I've been through the education, the philosophy classes, and, and you start wondering, well, really, is it, is it really true? Is it really? Is it it's just like a, the Thomas Jefferson uh, view of God, the deist view of God? You know, maybe God just sort of round, wound up the earth and took off to another planet somewhere or whatever, and, and he just swings by every once in a while and answers a prayer. I mean, is that all there is? Sometimes it may seem like that to your life. You have answers to prayer, and then some answers are no. Some answers are yes, some answers are no. You go through adversity. You go through, uh, you know, times of low provision in your life. You don't feel protected in your life, and you think to yourself, is God there? Is he there? The question comes up, is the resurrection of Jesus Christ true? Because if it's true, then what he did on the cross was authenticated. That was the, the big reason for the resurrection, was whatever the cross of Jesus Christ supplied, the resurrection applied. Because Jesus Christ rose from the dead, it proves who Jesus Christ really was. And that means that the Son of God left heaven, came to this earth to be born in a stable, lived 33 and a half years, die on a cross for your sins, that he can be with you and you can be with him forever and ever and ever. Now, that means that God wants to be a part of your life and mine. Now, if he wants to be a part of my life, that just changes everything. If he wants to integrally be a part of what's going on and, and provide for me and give, give you wisdom and give you guidance and give you answers to prayer, protect and give you hope for the future, if he's there for you, well, man, that would mean everything. Jesus Christ and his original design was for you and I to be with him forever, but sin has separated us from God. You say, well, where, where am I a sinner? Well, maybe that's where you're missing it. Maybe you're just not seeing that. So, well, I think that I try to keep the, the main rules, you know, the Ten Commandments. Okay, well, the first one is, you shall put no other gods before God. Have you ever done that? Have you ever put anything first place in your life besides God? Have you ever put anything in your life before you have God? I mean, you know, your child, your, your, your job, your husband, your, your, your wife, your mother, your dad, anything. Well, yeah, yeah, I know I have. Well, that's breaking the first one. What about idol worship? Have no other idols. Aha. Uh -huh. I, I used to think, God, I've never done that one. I've never had a, a statue in my house and, that I've bowed down to in worship. But idol worship is a lot more than worshiping a statue. An idol means that I not only put something first place in my life, but it comes first place in my life all the time. In fact, I live for it. Do you live for anything besides God? I know I have. I've broken that commandment. Have you? The Bible says, honor your father and your mother. First commandment with a promise. Have you always done that? Have you ever done anything, said anything to dishonor your parents? I have, you probably have. The Bible says, don't bear false witness. Have you ever lied? Anybody that's married? <laughs> Does this look good on me? You know, <clears throat> do I look fat in this? 
Just don't gain any more weight. You're all right. You're all right. Just don't go above 400, 500 pounds, whatever. We bear, we, so well, those are kind lies. Well, well you know, they're bearing false witness, even though I would encourage you to just be kind. Uh, anyway. And what about covetousness? You ever gone through a neighborhood and said, wow, I wish my house was like that? You ever seen a car on the, on, driving beside you on the side of the road and say, I, boy, when, when my kids get out of the house and my dog dies, I'm going to buy one of those cars. <laughs> I'm going to buy one of those. Have you ever broken that one? I, I have. You see, we've broken them all, every single one. And the Bible says because of that, we're separated from God and one day we'll meet eternity, and it won't be in heaven. But God's original design is for us to be with him and to follow him. So how did he do that? He went to the cross, and he died there and took on your sins and mine. As I said, he hung on the cross, and at one point of the cross, when God the Father turned his back on his son because he could not stand to look upon your sin and mine, that's when he died for your lies. That's when he died for our adultery. That's when he died for our idolatry. That's when he died for our covetousness. That's when he died when we don't dishonor our parents. He, he died for it all. And to prove that, he said, I'm going to prove this by rising on the third day and be with you. And he ascended up into heaven, and he says, I've got to go up into heaven because I'm going to send my Holy Spirit, that is the Spirit of Christ, to live inside your heart and everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord is saved, and the Spirit of God calls a born-again experience to come into our life because the inner core of who we are receives the Spirit of Christ in our heart. And that just changes everything. God with you. But I, I need to move on. And that is I can trust his hand. I can trust his hand. Listen to verse 18. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. We, we wonder to ourselves again, over and over again, I, I say this, but when we even pray, we ask God for something. We want to know, first of all, God, do you love me enough to do it? I've already said that. But God, are you powerful enough to deliver? He says, all authority, all power, all rulership is given to me. I can trust what he's doing. I know that he, no matter what it looks like to me, I can't see the end. All of the facts in my life may be real, but they're not all the facts. All the facts in your life, all the circumstances in your life may be real and they're true. They're just not the whole truth. I can trust his hand. And then here's something very important to me. Maybe it is to you. I can trust his word. I can trust his teaching. Verse 20 says, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Now, I know that there's all kinds of proofs to the Bible. I have a, a book um, called uh, Overcoming Spiritual Vertigo. I've got a whole chapter about the Bible, all the proofs, all the evidences of the Bible. But there came a time in my life where I said I had to ask the question, God, come on, is this, is this really true? And I know it's probably a spiritual warfare thing, but nevertheless, you take philosophy courses and begins to you begin to question things. Fortunately, I, I uh, had a wife, had a good head on her shoulders, but also I, I had a mentor, Billy Hanks Jr. in seminary, and I asked him, I said, Billy, you were, you were a philosophy major. How did you get through this? And he said, my, my mentor told me, read the Bible more than you do the philosophy books and you won't have a problem. He said, that's what I did, and I didn't have a problem. So that's what I did, and I didn't have a problem. But here's the thing. 
if God, if God wants to be an integral part of my life, now listen to me very carefully. He is going to want to communicate with you. And he is going to want you to get to know him in a deep, deep way. And he's going to want you to trust his word when he makes a promise. And he's going to want you to trust his word when he makes a commandment. He's going to want you to trust what's, what's in his communication book in order to live life in wisdom, to have a direction in life, to have vision in life, but also just simply to get to know him. Now, if I took this Bible and said, look, uh, you know, this is great advice, and I would follow it, and except for some of it's true and some of it's not, chances are you're not going to follow it at all. If somebody said, well, you know, Pastor Mercer is a good guy to go to for counseling, but you can only be, believe about half of what he says. <laughs> chances are you're not coming to me. And I had to come to the place in my life and say, okay, God, the resurrection, if you rose from the dead, that means that you died on the cross and if you died on the cross, that means God with us. It means that you've forgiven me of all my sins. It means that you want to be a part of my life. And if you want to be a part of my life, and you're powerful enough to die on the cross for my sins 2,000 years before they happen, rise again on the third day, ascend up into heaven, send your Holy Spirit down to this earth, and you are powerful enough to give me a Bible that I can trust. And if I can't trust it, then I go right back to the deist God. God's not that interested in me. I can trust his word. Listen to what Paul said in Ephesians, the book of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 17. And he, meaning Jesus, came and preached peace to you who were afar off and peace to those who were near. Now, how did Jesus do that? Jesus never went to Ephesus. He'd never been to that. He's never visited that city. How did he do that? He did that through the word of God. But lastly, I can trust him with my life. If Jesus Christ rose from the dead, what does it mean? It means everything. It just means everything. It means that he is the son of God. He's the most important person that's ever lived. He's our creator. He sustains us in this life. He takes care of us in this life. It, it just, it means everything. And so I can take myself off the throne of my life and say, God, I'm better off trusting you than going my own way. I'm better off following you. I, I don't know the future. I know very little of the past, very little of the present. You know everything. I have very little power, God, but you've got all power. Sometimes I love me, sometimes I don't. But you love me all the time. God, I can trust you. And I can trust you not only with my life, but if I can bring this in, my soul as well. There's no other time that we experience sort of that God moment, I think, when we come to a funeral and the casket of our loved one is laid out in front of that chapel or church, and the pastor gets up and starts preaching about heaven, quoting verses about heaven, reading verses about heaven. You say, yes, 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 but you go out and you wonder, is that really true? Is it really true? Am I, am I, is my loved one really still living? Are they really in heaven? Jesus said in the Bible to his disciples, prepare them for his death. He said, 
Do not let your heart be troubled. Right here in verse, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe on what? Also in, in my Father's house, so many rooms or mansions. I like that word. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you into myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Trusting him. Look, look what he says here in verse 20. He says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The end of history. He is the Lord over all of history. Paul said death has been swallowed up in victory. The last thing we experience is the sting of death, but the sting has been taken out because once we go away from this earth, we inherit a brand new heaven and earth. And we're with Jesus Christ forever and forever. And so I can trust him. I can trust him with my life. I can trust him with my soul. And so what are you trusting in today? What are you trusting in? Is it firm? Is it right? Don't be like the, the story I hear and I tell about the guy who was climbing the buildings. I don't know if you ever heard that. He's 1930s, 1940s. He used to take his sharp fingernails and go into the, uh, uh, the concrete in between bricks, climb buildings. That's true. He used to do this. And there's been more than one guy do it. But he was climbing back in the 1930s a building in New York City. And he was climbing. Everybody was on the ground watching. He'd done this so many times before. And it looked like he was trying to reach for something, and he couldn't reach it. Finally, he lunged just a little bit to grab what looked like a rock, and he fell to his death. And when they opened up his right hand, they found a cobweb. He had mistaken a rock, or cobweb for a rock. And sometimes maybe that's what we're doing in life. We're mistaking the foundation that we think we have, the hope that we think we have on something that's really hopeless. Jesus came to a hopeless world, and his original design is to get you back with him, trusting him as he would be with you forever. What about you? Wouldn't you like that this morning? Wouldn't you like to be able to say, I want to apply the, res- the greatest event and the greatest person that's ever lived to my life personally and make my life worth living for purpose, for protection, for, for provision in life? With heads bowed and eyes closed, this morning, if that's your prayer, that you want to receive Christ into your heart and life, into the inner core of who you are, I invite you this morning with heads bowed and eyes closed, no one moving around, in the quietness of this moment, with heads bowed, to pray this prayer with me. You can pray it silently as I pray aloud. It goes like this. Lord God, I thank you for dying on the cross, for rising on the third day, because you love me, because you want to be with me, You want to be a part of my life. I surrender my heart to you. I ask you to come into my heart as I ask you to forgive me of everything that I've done. 
I pray that you would help me to follow you as the new Lord of my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. You can find more sermons and other information at crosslifechurch.com.